you used to live in Croydon, didn't you? I, I went to visit a friend once in Wimbledon. And we went to a local Italian restaurant to get some pizzas. And it was the best Italian restaurant I've ever been in. Because the moment you set foot in this restaurant, there were Italian staff arguing and fighting <laughs> in full view of all the diners. It was a proper Italian restaurant. It was brilliant. You could, you could, taste, the, you could taste the anger and the, and, the, and the arguing in the pizza. It was brilliant. <laughs> right. Let's we get this show on the road. Yeah. Do you want to do a little wee countdown? Let's do it in German. In German. Uh, drei. Drei. Eins. Zwei. zwei. <laughs> Eins. Ein. Schnell. 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 Schneide. Schneide. Schnell. Achtung. Klappen die Lederhosen. Etc. Etc. <laughs> right. Welcome to Resistance Week, Tom. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. I, I feel welcomed to Resistance Week. <laughs> how have you found the Resistance Week? Well, I think before we talk about how we found it, we should probably introduce our new audience members, of which there are at, at least more than one. To The concept of that was genius. So uh, every week there is a topic. This week it's Resistance. And resistance. Resistance. And Tom, who is the other voice sitting in New Zealand, and I, Sam, sitting in Britain, Compare interesting history stories that we've discovered over the week. The story that we talk about is pretty much a surprise, but we have a topic. And that's this podcast. Hilarity ensues. There are almost certainly some dodgy accents, although I've picked a Spaniard this week, so I can't do a Spanish accent. Mm, neither can I. Well, it won't stop us from trying, will it, Sam? It won't stop us from trying. We're going to have a lovely time. It's going to be amazing. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Resistance. La resistance. I've gone Second World War. When have you gone? I've gone Second World War. When have you gone? I've gone Second World War. This is like an Instagram. <laughs> it's like an audio boomerang. Yes. Much like all my friends on social media with their baby photos. Again and again and again. <laughs> I don't share photos of babies, Sam. Good. That makes you a good person. <laughs> That's not... A, yeah. Hmm. I think people were probably listening and thought I meant something different. Um, I, I just don't... I don't like sharing b images of children. You know, they haven't consented to having all their images spread over social media, have they? No. I like to keep some things private. Right. La résistance. This is going to be one of those where you have a hard time editing it, isn't it, Sam, this episode? <laughs> I feel... You know, I'm going to leave it raw. I'm going to leave it as God intended. <laughs> this is going to be higgledy-piggledy. <laughs> I'm doing Norway... Where is your resistance from? Well, it's funny you should ask that, Tom, because my resistance wasn't really anywhere. It was completely imaginary. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the History Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, that was very, very 20th century French philosophy. Indeed. <laughs> my protagonist today thought and therefore was resistance. Oh. Just to spell it out a little bit more, because I feel like that's a, a slightly, as you say, a slightly existential tease to leave our audience on. My guy today was a double agent who completely invented a resistance cell in Britain to waste the Germans' time. Good. Good on him. Good on him. Good on him. Well, my man was a genuine. He was a genuine resistance guy. Well, la-dee-da. Look at you. <laughs> With your Norwegian resistance. With chat. your real people. <laughs> I've got real friends, no, I don't. <laughs> okay, what are we going to toss? Flip. Flip it. Flip it real good. Flip it good. real good. Oh, I hadn't thought this far ahead. Hold on a second. Right. Okay. This week we're. What have you got? This week hand? we're going big, Tom. 
It's, it's not your chair, is it? It's not. Your, it's not your desk. You're not flipping. It's my your TV. Desk. I'm going to put it out the window. <laughs> Very Oasis. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> Rockstar. Hey. hey, throwing my TV out the window. <laughs> what are you flipping? Sorry. This week we're flipping an entire roll of duct tape, Tom. Still in its original packaging. An entire roll of yeah. duct tape. <laughs> Excellent. How is that hostage, <laughs> Sam? <laughs> in your office. Well, given that, <laughs> given that this roll is still in its original packaging and hasn't been unwrapped yet, frightfully noisy, Tom. As soon as this podcast's done, we'll uh, quieten them down a little bit. <laughs> I hope they're cable tied up. They're cable tied with podcast glory, Tom. They're, they're just sitting here riveted stuck in their spot waiting to see what's going to happen with this podcast perched on the edge of their what would you put a hostage on that's not as comfortable as a seat perched on the edge of the central heating pipe in the basement of my new york apartment building <laughs> that's it <laughs> there you go that was yes. good excellent perfect all i could think of was potty <laughs> Burst <laughs> on the edge of a potty. I can't imagine which of us has young kids. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Gives the listeners an indication of the stage of life that I'm in. <laughs> Toss your hostage, Sam. Well, that went a bit BDSM, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> What's the safe word? Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to toss my duct tape. Would you like the side that says duct tape on it? This is not the most interesting toss we've ever done, but I'm short of ideas. Would you like the side that says duct tape on it, or would you like the side that says advantages of duct tape? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, repeat that. My apologies. Repeat that. I was going to make a wanking joke. (laughs) I, for one, am shocked. Would you like the side that says duct tape on it or the side that has the advantages of duct tape on it? What are the advantages of duct tape? I feel like I need to know more before I make my decision. It's slightly marketing wanky, I'm afraid. The advantages of duct tape. Repair. Ideal for repairing things around the home. Fix. Which to me sounds quite similar to repair. It's sticky on most surfaces. Create. Get imaginative. It suggests that the things you create with duct tape, you then pass it on in bright yellow letters to your friends. Those friends are non-existent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you're modelling with duct tape. I want the side with all the guff on it that you've just explained. Right. Hang on, I'm going to move my... Uh, this is going to make some noise, so... Did you hear that? <laughs> Yeah, that was the sound of your hostage <laughs> having a bit of duct tape thrown against his head. You're right there, Steve. He's all right. That's <laughs> what he. what he's paid for. Best stag do ever. Uh, you win, Tom. <laughs> I win. I win. Right. Okay. You can go into bat first. Well, I'd like to, if I may, give an honourable mention to the people I was going to talk about today, but unfortunately my sources didn't become available in time, who were a few of the female Jewish partisans who fought the Nazis around Nazi-occupied Europe. And these were some badass women. Yes. So there was Sarah Fortis, or Sarah Fortis, who was a Greek partisan, a Greek resistance fighter, who really proved her worth as an actual fighter. A lot of the women in these partisan groups throughout Europe were kind of tasked with defending the camp and cooking and cleaning and the usual slightly sexist things. But she was an absolute badass. So her group were tasked with basically flanking the Germans in any ambush and lobbing Molotov cocktails at them to distract them whilst the men went in with a heavy machine gun. So she would actually get really quite close to these German patrols hiding in buildings and and light flaming bottles of presumably being in Greece, Ouzo or Grappa or Petrol and, and lob them at the Germans. 
from point blank range. Almost like a skirmisher, an ancient skirmisher. Like a Greek skirmisher, yeah. We had Gertrude Boyarski. She was tasked with destroying a bridge and she had no materials whatsoever. So she went and bullied the locals into giving her some matches and some paraffin and some rags. And under machine gun fire from the Germans, she and her friend literally burnt down this wooden bridge by hand. (laughs) and kept on throwing rubbish and kindling on it until it was completely destroyed. Excellent. That's pretty badass. Uh, She, incidentally, to get into her partisan group, was forced to stand guard alone in a forest full of Germans for two weeks, which sounds absolutely horrifying in the middle of winter, which she did. I didn't realise they had initiation ceremonies like university rugby teams. Yeah, they quite often did. Uh, They quite often involved... Drinking your own vomit! Dressing up as a German and running through the other partisans, you know, the normal hijinks. (laughs) And Etta Robel was another one as well. She was a a Polish resistance fighter who uh, was once shot in the leg and the doctor in her partisan group basically gave her a bottle of vodka and a penknife and she had to dig the bullet out of her own leg with a knife, Rambo style. Ah, yes. That's what I, yeah, Rambo. And she point-blank refused to cook and clean and insisted on going on missions with the men and, and led quite a few of the missions with the men. So I was going to talk about them today, but unfortunately the book with more details didn't arrive. I tell you what I like about this period of history. that It's brilliant because the Nazis are just bad, aren't they? Yes. There's not really much that's good about them. And so it's very black and white. And so it's good fun. <laughs> There's no subtlety here. There's no nuance. It's just like a Hollywood movie. It's like Indiana Jones and the Nazis, isn't it? It's great. Yes. The, the partisans did steal quite a lot from the local population, uh, more out of desperation than anything else. And a lot of them were all also joining up with the Soviets and were given uh, okay, okay, okay. yes, and were given some fairly unsavoury tasks of eliminating people who certainly weren't Nazis, but also weren't that friendly to Stalin. So they did what they could to survive. Yes, okay. <laughs> they weren't necessarily... Okay, so there is more... There is more nuance. Certainly on the Eastern Front, there's more nuance. Yeah, certainly on the Eastern Front. I was front. about to say, with these Norwegian chaps, they're just basically giving the Nazis a hard time. So who did you settle on then? So today I settled instead on a guy who I actually discovered a couple of weeks ago and really wanted to talk about. So I've kind of shoehorned him into today. And he is Juan Pujol Garcia, mm-hmm. who was an incredible storyteller, a fantastic double agent, probably one of Britain's most valuable assets in World War II, and the guy that the Germans believed was their most valuable asset, but was actually completely wasting their time the entire time. (laughs) Ha-ha. Busted. Busted. Screw you, Nazis. Well, quite. So he was a guy with an extraordinary imagination who weaved an entire world of resistance units within Britain. An absolutely amazing story, and I'm really pleased that I get to talk about him. As his name sounds, he was Spanish. He was born in Barcelona in 1912. What a beautiful horizon. (laughs) Yes. Is that a song reference? Am I missing something? Barcelona, what a beautiful horizon. Right. It's Freddie Mercury and uh, Pavarotti from the 1992 Barcelona Olympics, Sam. Right. <laughs> come on. Uh, you should have got that I reference. I mean, I was six. I should have known, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, come on. Anyway, so he had various jobs, managing farms and doing odd jobs. Blah, 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 blah. A pretty normal childhood growing up. Blah, 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 by the way, is exactly what you want to hear in a detailed source-based history podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Ever know he did some shit, it was fine. <laughs> anyway, fast forwarding on to more interesting times. There's limits to how much I'm willing to talk about his background in poultry farming. The Spanish Civil War arrived in 1936. 
Don't be such a chicken. Yay, you <laughs> massive cock. <laughs> I can hear you laughing hysterically at your own jokes. I'm now. not. <laughs> what you're hearing is your echo of you laughing hysterically at my joke. I'm waiting for you to stop so I can carry on. <laughs> oh dear. <clears throat> the Spanish Civil War arrived in 1936. Cock. Cock. The Spanish Civil War arrived, Tom, in 1936. 1936, <laughs> the Spanish Civil War arrived. Yes. It's always when you least expect it, isn't it? And I, I just got my ironing done. I was just about to hang out the washing. I'd thrown the donkey off the church roof. I'd had my chorizo. And what do you know, a bloody civil war starts. Very inconvenient. Well, it certainly was inconvenient, Tom, because Juan's sister and mother were arrested by the Republican side. Do you see how I seamlessly but forcibly returned that to my story? (laughs) (laughs) So his sister and mother were arrested by the Republican side, who were the side that were allied with the anarchists and the communists, kind of the the left-wing side in the Spanish Civil War. And the Republicans tried to conscript Juan himself, but he hid from them with his girlfriend before managing to get papers faked, saying that he was too old to fight. Despite being just 24, the papers said he was in his mid-50s and he managed to get away with it somehow. So now living and working under a local communist government, he decided he pretty much hated communism. He was back on the poultry farm, it was now being run by uh, kind of a communal council, and it was going to shit. He decided, I don't like this. So what he did was he rejoined the Republican army, which he very much tried to get out of, with the hope of immediately deserting to the nationalist side, which was the right-wing fascist side. And he did, before very quickly discovering that fascism isn't actually very nice, Tom. Who'd have thunk? No, no. And so within the space of a couple of weeks, he was done with the war and was done with both sides. Unfortunately, he couldn't really escape the fascist side during the Civil War. But once it was all over, he was apparently very proud of the fact that he'd managed to serve both sides waste both of their time and never fire a shot in the entire war. Being now as he was very anti-communist and also very anti-fascist, he decided that as Europe descended into war, there was only one path to take to be able to save Europe from the political extremes. Poultry farming. Yes. To create an elite flying squad of chickens. (laughs) Yes, I think that that's a film, isn't it? It is that film. Chicken Run, yes. So he decided that there was only one way to go, and that was to go to the bastion of truth and honesty and respecting and treating Johnny Foreigner like one of your own, the British Empire. God bless, God bless, God bless, God bless, Sam, God bless. I'm standing up and saluting the Majesty of the Queen. I've got a tear in my eye, Tom. Oh, God I've got a tear in my eye just thinking of Winston Churchill. Winston? Lying naked in the bath, piss out of his mind. God bless you, Winston. Unfortunately, the British had absolutely no interest, unsurprisingly, in some random Spanish bloke with no history whatsoever of intelligence work. Very different to the Premier League nowadays. Where lots of Spaniards with no history of intelligence managed to get in. (laughs) Managed to... Managed to run it forward. I think that was a good joke. I'm not sure. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what happens in the edit. Did it work? I don't know. It's one of those I'm not sure it worked. Let's insert some candle after. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yours was more convincing than mine. It's usually, I was about to say, it's usually with canned laughter, there is usually someone in the background doing a more hearty laugh, isn't there? Just to add sort of layers yes. to it. So Juan started to make himself useful and make himself a valuable asset to the British. And how did he do this, Tom? Farming chickens. What is... <laughs> no. We're going to put chickens to one side for a minute. He did it by doing exactly what he did during the Spanish Civil War. 
by signing up for the other side. So he forged himself a diplomatic passport and assumed the identity of a fanatically pro-Nazi Spanish government official who made regular business trips to London and then approached the Germans to offer his services. And the Germans thought, brilliant, this is perfect. Spain's neutral. We've got a fanatically pro-Nazi guy that we can just send over to Britain. He can do all of our intelligence work. This is great. So they took him on straight away with a crash course in spying, £600 in his pocket, a bottle of invisible ink, the code name Alaric, and instructions to move to London and start an intelligence unit. Alaric? Was that a Vandal or a Visigoth leader? Alaric I was the first king of the Visigoths from 395 to 410. Yeah, that's right. He sacked Rome in 410. That's what I thought. There we go. I feel like a (laughs) smartass. Good for you. That is excellent history knowledge. Well done. Thank you very much. So he was tasked with moving to London. What Pujol actually did was move to Lisbon in Portugal, away from the prying eyes of all the Nazi agents in Spain, and then sit on his arse, writing up an incredible adventure. He pulled a network of fictitious spies right out of his rectum, choosing their locations and charging his expenses on the basis of a pocket guide to Britain's railways. (laughs) He'd never been to Britain, so he made some odd mistakes about some of his agents, because he didn't really understand British culture. His man in Glasgow apparently drank a litre carafe of wine every night, which doesn't (laughs) sound very Scottish, sounds almost Spanish (laughs) to me. <laughs> Very cultured Glaswegian. Okay, I can't move without me a litre of finest Yorker. Hey, I need to wash down me battered Mars bars. <laughs> my battered chorizo. <laughs> yeah. That's the first Scottish accents we've put into this podcast, isn't it? Absolutely. So this wasn't the only problem that uh, Pajol had with Britain. Uh, Britain, of course, using pre-decimal currency, which absolutely no one... <laughs> under the age of 50 today understands and he didn't understand it at the time so he just whitewashed all his expenses and said well that was about two pounds roughly maybe (laughs) he got all of his news from newsreels and magazines and occasionally travel brochures and the pocket guide to ships of the royal navy so that if he needed to name a ship he could the germans were absolutely thrilled with all of this progress they were making but unfortunately he did become a bit of a pain in the ass for the british which is unfortunate because he was trying to impress them so the british intercepted some of his writings and became so convinced that he was in fact a real spy they launched a full-scale manhunt for him and his network of spies in the uk Uh, they did pretty quickly realize however that whoever they were searching for was in fact actually deliberately wasting the germans time On one occasion, he even created a fake naval convoy, which the German Navy sent tens of ships and submarines to intercept. Never existed. He just just completely made it up. He pointed at the map and said, Liverpool? Or in a Spanish accent, Liverpool. (laughs) That was was good. That wasn't bad. How long... How how much has that been practised over the last seven days? (laughs) It was pure luck. On the train, Liverpool. How did you do? I don't even know you did that. Try again. Liverpool. It's still Mexican. I'm just doing Mexican, but if I just do it one word at a time, no one can tell. (laughs) Great. Apart from any Spanish people listening, who our podcast stats tell me is zero, so safe to be racially insensitive. (laughs) (laughs) So it was at this point that Pajol's wife approached the American Secret Service, who saw what he was doing, saw that he was quite useful, and finally put him in touch with MI5. So he became pretty much the only willing double agent of the war. Uh, Certainly the only one who joined one side in a specific attempt to get the other side to hire him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty deep double cover, this. So for the first couple of years of the war, he was an independent spy, 
They're just doing it for fun, off his own back. (laughs) (laughs) Whilst actually not being a spy and sitting on his arse drinking coffee and reading travel magazines. And learning a bit about Glaswegian culture, yeah. And learning very little about Glaswegian culture. So at this point, the British gave him his spy alias, which he'd become known by for the rest of his career and through history which was Garbo, after Greta Garbo, the greatest actress in the world at the time. Ah. So Pajol was teamed up with a guy called Thomas Harris, who was a fluent Spanish speaker, and he moved to London with his family, and they got to work. Now, Harris and Pajol bounced off each other, uh, just like we do, Tom. They were a fantastic double act. Ah, great chemistry. Magic together. Classic chemistry. Wonderful bromance. Anton Deck. Robson, Robson and Jerome, Jerome. <laughs> Cannon and Ball. How did we both go down the same route? How did we both pick out Robson and Jerome? Because that's the kind of chemistry we have, Tom. Yeah, absolutely. That's the kind of chemistry that wins wars. Is this who we're trying to appeal to with our podcast? We're we trying to appeal to 60 year old women. Is that who we're That's the dream. To? The silver pound, Tom. The silver pound. Oh, good grief. Nobody knows who Robson and Jerome are. Does no. people know who Anna Deck are? <laughs> Probably not. Who's a famous American double act? Laurel and Hardy. Like Laurel and Hardy. Speaking of characters and double acts, Tom, here's a few of the people that these guys created to fool the Nazis. The brothers of the Aryan World Order, who sound very dark and foreboding, who were a fanatically pro-Nazi resistance movement of Welsh nationalists living in Swansea. (laughs) (laughs) Swansea, by the way, small town in Wales. (laughs) There was our Venezuelan businessman and wine aficionado based in Glasgow, who we've already mentioned. There was the loose-lipped American army sergeant. There were the fanatical Indian nationalists, the KLM courier pilots, KLM being the Dutch airline, the camp guards and waiters at officers' clubs and army bases around the UK. We're discarding the camp, boys. Oh, dear. I love being a guard. Yes, Queen, sachet that rifle butt. It's <laughs> <laughs> enough Kenneth Williams. <laughs> so, in all, this network of pro-Nazi informants and resistance groups in the UK numbered 27, none of whom existed, all absolutely fake, and he was doing this all while sitting home quite comfortably, scratching his ass. <laughs> he was actually really bloody busy, Tom. He did quite a lot of work, it turns out. He wrote 300 letters to the Germans via uh, this KLM pilot courier and a secure postbox in Lisbon. 300 letters of around 2,000 words each and hundreds of radio transmissions. They really kept the Nazis busy, wasting a huge amount of time and resources. Yeah, very hard-working bullshitters. Well, I mean, he worked pretty hard to get here, so I don't think he was going to waste his opportunity. You need to make a good impression, Tom. He's in a six-month probation period. Needs to make the tea, prove that he's serious about what he's doing. Write lots of stupid letters. (laughs) Put them all in envelopes, put the stamps on them like a good work experience, kid. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get to the end of the day with a really dry tongue, licking all those stamps. (laughs) And your boss's arse. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I was going to say the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) So what he wrote was, it was really interesting, his tactic. Some of what he wrote was nearly true but missed or fudged a few key details that he thought the Germans would never notice, but which would alter their plans. So numbers or locations, things like that. There'd be mistakes in there. Some of it was just plain fake, and he would sell it as substantiated rumours. And some was true and actually really militarily valuable. But after being postmarked and stamped, it was held back by MI5 for a couple of days. So it arrived just a little bit too late. Ah... 
just to give credibility. Yeah. Absolutely. So he wrote a completely true story that a large number of ships was amassing in Britain in Mediterranean camouflage and were being boarded by thousands of troops. And this was the Operation Torch Landings, which were the American-British invasion of, of North Africa. What's Mediterranean camouflage? Well, I, do you know what? I don't really know, because sand, presumably, but these ships are in the sea. Like a leather jacket and denim. oh i i see where you're going yes (laughs) a leather jacket and on top of the ship's chimney the ship's funnel there's just a really (laughs) 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 the italian guards are like looking off the coast going Hey, uh, what is that oh it's okay so one of our ships is got a crust and a tomato sauce (laughs) It's a painted red with a cheese on it. Hey, it looks like it's a funds. Hey! <laughs> ah, it's our flagship, the SS Meatballs. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Who's that ship belong to? Oh, it's okay, the wing mirrors hanging off and the captain smoking with one hand, a mobile phone in the other. Five Honking bambinos the in the back. It's a definitely <laughs> Italian ship. It's surrounded by scooters. Oh. <laughs> I, I'm just thoroughly enjoying that image of the Italian Navy in World War II. <laughs> just, just the Fonz, a giant pizza. A huge floating, floating Vespa. <laughs> An Italian aircraft carrier with just thousands of men in leather jackets on Vespers waiting on the deck. (laughs) 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 Anyway. So these are the kind of reports that this guy was writing. Um, (laughs) My jaw hurts. (laughs) What did he do, Tom, when he was asked to provide something that he couldn't easily fake? Sorry, I'm still laughing. <laughs> I'm still laughing at the thought of a battleship in a leather jacket <laughs> with greasy hair and a pair of denim. So anyway, when Pajol was asked to provide information that he couldn't easily fake, the advantage of having a complete series of made-up agents is that you could just kill them. <laughs> so, for example, in imaginative ways. <laughs> yeah. So, for example, he was asked to provide some information on fleet movements which he couldn't fake. So, uh, unfortunately, his man in Liverpool, a guy called William Gerbers, fell ill and died. There was an obituary in the paper, and uh, Pajol even convinced the Germans to pay for the agent's funeral <laughs> and a pension for his wife. <laughs> Brilliant. I've no real military value, but just, just funny. Yeah, absolutely. And all of this worked. He was so successful that documents recovered after the war showed that the Germans actually didn't have any other spy networks in Britain. They were so convinced they didn't need them because this guy was so good (laughs) that they didn't bother recruiting anyone else. You know what, Sam? I think this is a job you and I could do quite well. I think so. We can spin a yarn. If a world war ever breaks out again, this is where I'm going to go head in. (laughs) Sounds like five years of great fun, doesn't it? He had a whale of a time. But, you know, it was working. The German Secret Service quoted him over 60 times in their briefings to the German High Command, meaning his reports were repeatedly ending up in the lap of Hitler himself. In fact, he was so highly regarded by the Germans that they actually awarded him the Iron Cross just a few days before D-Day for all of his services in the war effort. 
um, because he was Spanish and wasn't actually in the German military, Hitler himself had to personally authorise this award. Oh, brilliant. And it was given to him over the radio. In fact, uh, after the war finished, he did travel to Germany and met one of his German handlers and was actually given the medal in person because they still didn't know he was a double agent. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So obviously the timing of this is ironic given that he was one of the most important individuals in spreading misinformation about the D-Day landings. Oh. Most people know a little bit about all of the misinformation that happened before D-Day. It was called Operation Fortitude and there were thousands of fake transmissions, fake documents dropped, fake military divisions created, inflatable tanks put in fields, fake armies marched up and down the coast. Just millions of pounds and millions of man-hours put towards confusing the Germans as to where and when the D-Day landings were going to take place. Who was manning the inflatable tanks? Well, no one. They were inflatable. Oh, sorry. Uh, was, was the was the answer you expecting? Sex dolls. The blow, yes, the blow up soldiers. <laughs> Very pouty lips. <laughs> um, <laughs> a field full of sex dolls <laughs> with moustaches and little leather hats. <laughs> oh dear! Is that a pistol in his hand? Or... <laughs> oh no! <laughs> right, Winston. What we've found is we found that every single person in the UK called Nigel seems to have a sex doll that they're not telling their wife about. Give us your railings and your sex dolls. <laughs> For the war effort. <laughs> we've knocked on every Nigel's door and we've we've taken their sex dolls. Apologies to anyone listening called Nigel, by the way. You can have your sex doll back soon. <laughs> I just love the idea of the pornographers of Britain signing up for the war effort. <laughs> the wankers we've of given Britain. Up... <laughs> wankers for victory. <laughs> and crack one off. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, God. Right. Right. Focus. So, so Pujol was absolutely instrumental in the disinformation campaign in the lead-up to D-Day. He was feeding all of these reports to the Germans. Stop laughing in the background. I'm really struggling. (laughs) And feeding them all of these reports saying that there's actually a whole second invasion wave coming that was going to attack Calais and that it was even bigger. Actually, D-Day was just a distraction. So he was sending all of these reports to the Germans who believed them so thoroughly that they actually moved troops away from the D-Day landings and defending Normandy and put them in Calais because they were sure that the Allies were coming to invade a second time. And for all of these acts, he was given an MBE in November 1944, making him pretty much the only person in the war to have been given awards for gallantry and service in the war by both the British and the Germans for his service. (laughs) You can't see me, but I'm still in stitches. I'm crying. (laughs) (laughs) But because I'm a professional, I'm trying desperately to carry on. (laughs) I haven't heard anything you've said for the last couple of minutes. (laughs) That's fine. It means you're not interrupting. Um... (laughs) 
Oh, please let me finish. I've got two lines left of my notes and then it's all yours. Go, do it. So the Nazis never cottoned on to him being a fraud. He managed to get away with it for the entire war, but he was quite scared of reprisals in the years after the war. And so in 1949, he disappeared and faked his own death from malaria in Angola before fleeing to Venezuela, which is ironic, really, because that's quite close to where an awful lot of the actual Nazis who he was scared about fled to, uh, when they all went off to South America and Argentina. And his identity was only rediscovered in 1984 following a huge hunt by a British historian. And he was invited back to Britain and toured Normandy and was treated like an absolute hero for all of his war service. And he died in 1988, having cost the Germans thousands of troops and troops being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Tens of thousands of wasted hours of effort, huge amounts of wasted planning and over $350,000 in cash and expenses all frittered away on a completely imaginary spy network and network of resistance in Britain. What an absolute lad. Superb. So there we go. That was the story of Juan Pujol Garcia. Self-made double agent, pain in the arse and fantastic storyteller. A life well spent, I think. Apart from when he had to flee and become a shopkeeper in Venezuela. Yeah, oh, is that what he did for the rest of his life? Was it? A <laughs> yeah, yeah, he ran a gift shop. Oh, very good. From one Second World War hero to another. So I've chosen to talk about a Norwegian hero of the Second World War, the resistance movement in Norway, called Gunnar Sundstebi, which I'll have you know is an excellent pronunciation of his name. Is it? Are you going to do more Norwegian accents? Or are you going to rely on the fact that Norwegians speak amazing English? Yes, I think we're going to have to. I think I can do a kind of generic Scandinavian accent, but I might leave that tantalisingly hanging. The Norwegian resistance movement. (laughs) That's a bit Dutch, isn't it? He had two nicknames, actually, Sam. He had two nicknames. So Gunnar Sundstebi was known as Number 24. Good nickname. Number 24. Also known as The Chin. (laughs) I've seen it called The Jaw as well. The Jaw, The Cheeks. But I spoke to a Norwegian lady and she said it translates as The Chin. The Nose, Those Lips, The Pout. (laughs) Is that a song you're singing? The Azure Blue Eyes, no. (laughs) No, I'm just becoming slightly flirtatious. (laughs) Oh, okay. Why was he called Number 24, Tom? I don't know. I think it's because he was just... Because on the menu for my local Chinese takeaway, that's Kung Po Chicken and delicious. (laughs) But I'm pretty sure that's not his... I'm pretty sure that's not the reasoning. That's not his bag. No. I suppose number 23 was taken. It's like when you try and sign up to YouTube with your name. Tom Berry, that name is taken. Tom Berry 1, that name is taken. <laughs> Tom Berry 1989, that name is taken. God Shit. damn it. <laughs> Put some underscores in. So I'm going to have to be the Chininator 24. I, I like it when um, <laughs> I like it when I get people, um, uh, customers, customers, clients, who have email addresses that they, um, that they signed up for when they were 14. <laughs> And they're now 30 and slightly embarrassed but haven't quite got round to changing their email address. Do you have one, Tom? Do you have an embarrassing email address? I'm not going to tell everyone exactly what their email address is because I don't want people freaking emailing me with love letters and shit like that. A major, I got a major Tom email address. And when I was at university, this is when, this is when you lived upstairs and I lived downstairs, I remember phoning up a call centre, which was presumably in India or Pakistan or somewhere like that. And uh, the chap who was at the other end of the line was Indian and saw that my email address was Major Tom and started asking me about the military and where I'd served. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I played along and uh, I explained to him about how I'd served in, in Mumbai and Calcutta. 
And um, <laughs> I've got a huge amount of respect for this man. And uh, he sorted out all my problems very promptly. So, yes, I think I could be like your Spanish chap, Sam. If the Third World War broke out, I think I've got the ability. I think you have, Tom. So, Gunnar Sundstebe, also known as number 24, also known as the Chin. He is actually Norway's most decorated citizen. Really? Yes, awarded the Norwegian War Cross with sword and two swords. That's its official name. <laughs> so, three swords. I think you can get an additional sword for being extra, extra awesome. And so he's got two extra swords. And there are a number of other Norwegians who've got one extra sword, but he's the only one with two extra swords. And he's got heaps of other awards from other countries, including, in 2008, becoming the first non-American to be awarded the US Special Operations Command Medal. So he's a very, very Uh. well-decorated man. Covered in wallpaper. (laughs) Beautiful paisley pattern. (laughs) Lovely. (laughs) Born in 1918, died in 2012 at the ripe old age of 94. And as I mentioned, he was a heroic finger figure in the Norwegian. Re- <laughs> One heroic finger. finger. <laughs> his fourth nickname was the heroic finger. So the rest of his hand was an absolute coward, but there was just one finger just poking up above the brick wall, flicking the bird to the Germans. <laughs> Anyone, anyone who was in sight, he was just fucking have it. He couldn't control that finger. It's like a Doctor Strange love finger. He was a double hard bastard. He started it off his life surprisingly as an accountant. I also read in another source that he was actually a motorbike mechanic. So I don't know which one's true, but whatever. They're both at very different ends of the sexy job spectrum. <laughs> they are, yes. Aren't they? I hope he was an accountant because then you can give him the strap line. In the film of his life, he went from crunching numbers to crunching Nazis. Nice. I like that. Because all good action films with uh, A-list action star need their bad, jokey one-liners. Yes. Like where Arnie kicks a baddie in the balls and says... Have you ever wanted to become a farmer? And this guy looks at him and then he kicks him in the nuts and says, because here's a couple of acres. (laughs) (laughs) Classics like that. (laughs) And here's a good strapline as well for the posters for the film of Gunnar Stunstebe. Here's a quote, a direct quote. When your country is taken over by 100,000 Germans... You get angry. Yeah, that is a film strapline right there, isn't it? Yeah, That's him walking angry. away covered in machine guns, walking out of a giant explosion. Yes, absolutely. Explosions everywhere. And his big chin dragging along the floor as he walks away. A bit of background information. The German occupation of Norway began in April 1940. The Norwegians were completely ill-prepared for war. So there was a traditional armed resistance that only lasted about two months. And then a pro German government was set up called the Quisling Regime, which worked together with the Reichskommissionat Norwegian. It's one of those long German words. <laughs> said in a voice like a smurf. Reichskommissionat Norwegian. Was that better? Was that more German? No. <laughs> no. You sound like a witch from Macbeth. <laughs> a witch from Macbeth. That's very cultured. Near frog and nose of newt. So after the traditional resistance had ended, the traditional military resistance had ended, there became a sort of underground resistance movement, as was the case across occupied Europe. And it was called Milorg. Um, It worked together closely with the the SOE. Did you come across the SOE with your research, Sam? The Special Operations Executive. That's right. So that was Britain's organisation for helping and coordinating resistance movements during the war. And initially, it didn't actually work too well with Malorg. There was a little bit of friction between the two, but they soon got it going together and uh, became quite an efficient 
pairing. In 1941, Milorg became connected to the Norwegian government, which was in exile in London. They'd managed to escape. So the Norwegian government and a number of leading parliamentary figures, I think, had been quite clever and had been quite sharp and managed to get out of the country. And so they were the major resistance movements. But I also came across in my research another really funny thing, which amused me, which was a concept of an ice front. So this was basically Norwegian citizens being really awkward and petty towards Germans. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds a bit like resting bitch face. <laughs> it, that's exactly that's what it, that was exactly what it was. And I spoke to a Norwegian <laughs> lady about this and she said, oh, it's very Norwegian, very Norwegian <laughs> form of resistance. To just look grumpy and be unfriendly. That's exactly right. And just not talk to Germans. They just wouldn't talk to them. If you got on a bus and the only seat was next to a German, you'd stand up. And this was so commonplace that the Nazis had to ban standing up on public transport because people weren't sitting next to Germans. <laughs> what is wrong with you? I'm a very nice German in Germany. I, you know, I'm a very funny guy. You know, people like to be around me, which are Norwegians. You're always just shunning me and never sitting down. I'm just here to make friends. Why you hurt my feelings? I'm, I'm a very sensitive All Nazi. I want to do is conquer. <laughs> I want to conquer and love. Is that too much to ask? I know. And everyone thinks the Germans are not funny. I'm very funny. I always make my friends laugh. Here, listen to this one. Why did the Aryan cross the road? Because it saw some gypsies and it doesn't like the gypsies. No? Oh, tough crowd. (laughs) (laughs) So there was an ice front, which I just think is brilliant. Did they give out medals for that? Did they give out the military cross with frowny face? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Miserable old Norwegian woman going, yeah. Anyway, a little bit more about Gunnar. After the Germans occupied Norway, he joins a group called the Oslo Gang, which was a small gang of resistance fighters. There's a number of groups that he joins with different names. It's difficult It's difficult to get the exact details on how they connected together, but he was part of a group called the Oslo Gang. I would suspect it would be in Oslo. Uh, yes, the Oslo Gang no doubt was in Oslo. <laughs> Unless that was a double bluff. Well, it could have been, or a triple bluff. They were from Oslo but they thought that people would think they weren't from Oslo if they were called from Oslo, but they were from Oslo. Exactly the thing they would expect us to do. (laughs) Yes, precisely. Which is precisely why we'll do it. (laughs) A lot of spies and resistance fighters were actually recruited from Oslo University. So the Oslo gang was a small group of resistance fighters and actually became, and this is widely accepted, one of the best sabotage groups in the, the whole of Europe during the war. They were a very, very effective sabotage group. In 1942, he finds himself in Britain receiving training as a saboteur. Now, I think he went via Sweden, potentially. I think there was a way of getting from occupied Norway to UK via the Shetlands. I think it was called the Shetland Taxi. So people would go via boat to the Shetlands. Anyway, he finds himself in Britain, but he doesn't respond too well to the British discipline and almost gets chucked out of his training by just taking pot shots at at sheep in the Scottish Highlands. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, not the most promising start. Anyway, once he's completed his training, he gets parachuted back into Norway, where he soon becomes the leader of Norwegian Independent Group 1, also known as the Linges Company, Linges Company, uh, which was a group that was under uh, or sort of operating with the SOE. And this group is very famous, most famous, for its successes in preventing the Germans from producing heavy water at the Vermork hydroelectric plant in the area of Telemark. So Norsk Hydro had been capable of producing heavy water since the mid-1930s, 
And this was an important ingredient in creating nuclear weapons. And the Germans were obviously trying to create nuclear weapons. And that would have obviously been a game changer in the Second World War. And this facility, so this was the Vermont hydroelectric plant, was successfully destroyed in February 1943 during Operation Gunnerside, which is widely perceived, again, to be one of the best and most important acts of sabotage in the Second World War. It was very, 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 very successful. All of the saboteurs actually managed to escape as well despite a 3,000-strong Nazi search party. Amazing. And some of them even managed to ski 400 kilometres to Sweden to escape. Incidentally, I should clarify that Gunnar Stunstebe wasn't actually part of that sabotage, but it's a good sabotage to refer to. 1965 film, The Heroes of Telemark, stars Kirk Douglas and Richard Harris. And interesting fact for film lovers, one of the original saboteurs, one of the original Norwegian guys actually plays one of the German pursuers in the film. <laughs> Amazing. That's a really good bit of film knowledge. Yeah, presumably was a very, very competent cross-country skier, and so just played the role. And this Norwegian lady that I've referred to a couple of times now, she had a teacher at school whose husband was involved in this. Yeah. And is a, is a highly decorated Norwegian citizen. This is your Norwegian customer. Yeah. Incidentally, for anyone who's wanting to watch it, Rotten Tomatoes gives it 80%. But its audience score is 56%. But then I'll take that with a pinch of salt because <laughs> Braveheart does have a rating of 77%, and I thought it was shit. <laughs> so there you go. Gunnar was a master of disguise. He had 30 to 40 disguises that he used to avoid the Gestapo, and of course he was on their hit list. Very good at forging papers as well, and he could even forge the signature of a chap called Karl Martinsen who was the leader of the Nazi police in Norway. Was he also one of his disguises? I don't think so. I don't think so. Did you ever see them in the same room together? No. exactly. Well, yeah, absolutely. Carl Martinson actually sounds like a really horrible guy. He was responsible for the Norwegian Holocaust, so he's a very unpleasant chap. But he could forge his signature. And Carl Martinson was actually killed in 1945 by resistance fighters. Gunnar was a very, very disciplined and a sensible saboteur he would never stay in one location for too long he was always moving around he, he had a network of lots and lots of places where he could sleep one such place was a bakery and he knew that if he turned up and one of the waitresses gave him a certain look he knew that he could stay and if they gave him a slightly different look he knew he'd have to go because there were nazis around so he had he was very 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 effective and i also read somewhere part of his success was the fact that he just looked so gray he just looked like an accountant, you know? He just looked like a, such an average <laughs> bloke. He didn't have, like, a big Dolph Lundgren chiseled jaw and broad shoulders, you know? He just looked like an everyday bloke. Do you think once he was staring Nazis down in an alleyway, kind of machine gun pointed at him, he's like, I've done the numbers and yours is up? Yeah. <sighs> yes. I would like to think so. I'd like to think he did have some, you know, good lines. Absolutely. Here are some of the successes that he had with the Oslo gang. And I think the Oslo gang... You don't want to join in with my game. (laughs) (laughs) I'm too excited about Gunnar. I like the story of Gunnar. I just saw it very excited. So here are some of the successes of the Oslo gang, which I think was only about 10 man strong. So it was a very elite little group. So they gathered um, a lot of information about German U-boat building facilities in Trondheim and sent them to Britain. They captured and stole the Norwegian bank's printing plates nice. to stop them from printing money. It's just one of those things that it just causes a, a lot of problems, I imagine. Yeah. One of those sort of little things that doesn't seem particularly significant but would have caused a lot of problems. They stole 75,000 ration books at one point, which helped prevent a cut in rations that was being planned by the Germans. 
destroyed facilities used to produce sulfuric acid. They destroyed about 40 aircraft that were under repair at a tram depot. They destroyed lots of machinery, arms factories. They were very successful in delaying a response to D-Day by destroying lots of railways and carriages in the run-up to D-Day, which obviously just stopped the Germans from mobilising their troops. They burned lots of lubricating oils at a factory in Oslo. Bloody kinky Germans. Oh, no, not the lubricating oils. I <laughs> know. Oh, Hans, Hans, I've heard news from Oslo. The, the bomb butter is everywhere. It's boom all over Oslo. You cannot get a hold of bomb butter. It is dripping from the roofs of the town of Oslo. Mein God, Heinz, the south of England is full, full of inflatable sex dolls. And here are we, <laughs> dry as and bone. <laughs> War is hell, yeah? I know it has its upsides. But the locals are unfriendly. Their canned fish and clubbed seal hid under the ice is frankly disappointing, despite what I've read in the restaurant guides. And now this is too much. I wish they just sent me to the eastern front to be done with it. <laughs> Kinky, kinky Germans. I'm too sexy for my lederhosen. Too sexy for my lederhosen. So sexy it chafes. <laughs> oh, they, they assassinated many leading Wehrmacht, Wehrmacht figures. So they were they were assassinating people as well. New Year's Eve, nineteen forty four. They bombed the Gestapo headquarters in Oslo. I love the word Gestapo. Gestapo. <laughs> it's a great word, isn't it? Gestapo. They also bombed the employment office in Oslo, which prevented the Nazis from forcing Norwegian men into the army to fight against the Russians. So very, 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 very successful. Like I said before, often listed as the most successful resistance movement during the whole Second World War. And I was actually slightly disappointed, to be honest, Sam. I've had a very, very busy week. I did find an hour-long interview with Gunnar Sundsby on the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum website. So it's an oral history yeah. interview. I'd love to have listened to it, but I, I just couldn't find an hour in which to listen. But I, I imagine that is good fun to listen to. Well, well, let's link it in the podcast description. Absolutely. So there he is. That, that's Gunnar Sundstubi, a heroic accountant from Norway. Fantastic. I like that. And do you know what the best thing about his story is, Tom? What's that? It all adds up. Hey. And on that note, it's the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Oh, I've enjoyed this week, Tom. Have you had fun with this week? I've had a lot of fun, Sam. I love the idea of blown up sex dolls <laughs> in the south of England. Well, I think wanking for victory is <laughs> probably my favourite thing that's ever come out of this podcast. <laughs> Darling, I'm told by the local MP that we're supposed to all wank for victory. Yes, the vicar came round and told me that when the church bells chime three times... <laughs> Everyone's supposed to have a good wank. This one today, we're doing it whilst thinking about the Norwegian resistance. It's called Toss Off for Trondheim. <laughs> I have to say... It's really helping focus the mind on the war effort. Disappointingly, there's no lubricant available. All the lubricants have no. been blown up by the Norwegian resistance fighters. Ah, the depths we've plumbed. Well, on that note, I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. <laughs> have you had any thoughts on an episode for next week, Tom? A topic for next week? Film adaptations. So maybe we could do film history or historical events portrayed in films. What do you think? I, I want To flip that around slightly, I think that's a good idea, but... Can I suggest that we do historical events which really should be films, but aren't? Okay. That's trickier, because it requires more research. <laughs> it's trickier, because you can't just watch the film. No, I know. Oh, well, I, yes, okay. All right, then. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Done, Sam. I actually, yep, I've already got an idea. I'm going to do, yeah, so do that. <laughs> we can do that. Well... 
If you'd like to suggest something that isn't a film and should be, please do get in contact with us on our social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook, which Facebook. is at That Was Genius, or search for That Was Genius Podcast. You can find us on Twitter. Twitter. At that underscore was underscore genius. You can find us on Instagram. Instagram. I'll try, I tried to do that one like Beastie Boys. Uh, yes, not quite sure you know? I came across. At that was genius. So you can find us there. Let us know your thoughts on this or any other of our podcast episodes or next week's coming up. And if you enjoy this podcast, please do share it with your friends. It makes a massive difference. We enjoy doing this anyway, but we'd enjoy it even more if people were listening. <laughs> And on that note, I think we should say goodbye, shouldn't we, Tom? Auf Wiedersehen! Toodaloo! Toodaloo! Oh, super good.